Well, thank you for joining me today on Financially Speaking. My name is Mitch Slater, and I'm a senior vice president and financial advisor with UBS Wealth Management in Westfield, New Jersey, where along with my partners, Anne and Crystal, we do our best to bring you advice beyond investing and address our clients' most challenging financial needs. It's my sincere hope that each and every episode of this podcast will educate you on personal finance and real-life business issues of the day. So let's jump right in. So this is our second part of our entrepreneur series, and today we have a young woman who not only has a very cool new store in San Francisco, but just opened her first New York retail store in the beautiful Hudson Yards Mall. And if you haven't had a chance to get down there and you're in the New York area, you got to check it out. The store is called Batch, and as our guest Lindsay Meyer describes it, it's immersive, tactile shopping experience. I'm going to let you explain that. A thoughtfully curated selection of up-and-coming products and innovative brands. But like I said, I will let Lindsay tell us more about it. I met Lindsay recently at her New York City opening as a guest that day of a friend, Adrian Solgard, who's actually going to join us here. He's an entrepreneur who's created some very cool, socially responsible products, backpacks, suitcases, watches, and we'll hear from him later in the show. First, we're going to talk about Batch and the ups and downs of starting a business. But it would be unfair to not first mention that many of you may recognize Lindsay from her being featured in a story in the New York Times in 2017 about women in tech speaking frankly on the culture of sexual harassment. Lindsay was also featured on Time Magazine's cover later that year as one of the silence breakers in the growing Me Too movement. So like every interview we do here, we like to start out hearing people's stories. So first of all, welcome, Lindsay. Thanks, Mitch. So before we dig into Batch, I thought I'd give you a few minutes maybe to tell your story leading up to starting this exciting business. I I know you're a a Notre Dame grad. Exactly. So I am a Midwesterner by background. Um, Which means you're nice. (laughs) I know that because I'm married to one. (laughs) (laughs) My family still lives in the suburbs of Minneapolis, Minnesota, and didn't leave the Midwest for college. Um, As Mitch mentioned, I went to school at Notre Dame in Indiana, fighting Irish. I still like to cheer for the football team in the weekends or on Saturdays in the fall. And I was a science major, took a lot of physics classes. And so when I left the Midwest, um, I, I went west to California, settled in the San Francisco Bay Area almost 12 years ago and spent about the first half of my time there doing healthcare, biotech, life sciences. My very first company was a a small public drug company. It was acquired eventually by a much bigger biotech company in the area for over a billion dollars. That led to me doing a brief stint in consulting and then eventually finding my way into a venture capital fund where I invested in biotech, medical device, and some healthcare IT companies for a few years. That took us almost to the end of 2013. And fortunately, in my experience as a VC analyst, I got to be very hands-on and helping to incubate and seed some new healthcare companies that, that the fund was getting behind. And so through that, you know, really hands-on operating experience, um, had a taste of what the entrepreneurial life was like. And although I was leaving the healthcare world at that juncture and wanted to embark on something more uh, consumer or retail focused, I had a brief transition period kind of into e-commerce and spent about a year kind of moonlighting with a well-known online company called One Kings Lane. Mm-hmm. One Kings Lane was eventually acquired by Bed Bath & Beyond, um, but learned really everything that there was to know about how people shop and buy things for their home, both online and offline, that greatly informed sort of my journey in starting Batch. After 
One King's Lane. I had another entrepreneurial venture into doing my own company, which is unfortunately how I became entangled with everything that we talked about or everything I went public with a couple summers ago regarding the Me Too movement. And then in follow-up to that, did a a brief and short tour of duty through fashion where I helped Hilary Swank, the actress, Mm -hmm. launch a clothing line called Mission Statement. And then eventually found my way sort of back into the venture capital ecosystem where as an EIR or entrepreneur in residence, I was tapped to help a small fund create, launch, um, and eventually lead a new company, which is Batch. And so that was 2016. I've been the founder and CEO of Batch since then. Great. So let's talk about this whole new kind of retail experience that's, you know, that Batch is part of, because obviously it's a very different world in the retail sector. Yeah. So I had the fortunate responsibility of, or the good fortune, I guess, of working with Todd Kimmel, my partner, who is a full-time venture capital investor by day, in really creating and redefining where we thought retail was headed for the next generation of shoppers, as well as the next generation of brands. And, you know, 50 years ago, it was such that if you wanted to buy something, you would typically go to maybe a department store or a shopping center. And with the rise of e-commerce and online brands, Todd, as a venture investor, just really saw that kind of the circumstances of how and where and why people purchase things or even why they went to stores was changing so rapidly and saw an opportunity to really help define kind of where and how retail would change in the next decade. And so tapped me as really a millennial and somebody that sort of grew up shopping one way, but would ultimately sort of change habits and and patterns in my lifetime to rethink what that looked like. And, you know, what we ended up settling on is this very distributed but hyper-local model where we actually believe that in the future, people might shop from homes, homes in the neighborhoods where they live in. And it could be the house across the street. It could be the house around the corner. It could be sort of anywhere proximate to where you're living, working, visiting, traveling to. And so our first step on that journey was actually to sort of open our own more permanent location. So our first one opened in San Francisco in 2017, and that was followed up by Hudson Yards here just less than two months ago, actually. And our showrooms, we have two locations now, as we call them, are these constantly changing retail environments where you know six or seven days a week, you can go in, you can shop, but the brands and the products are changing every eight to 10 weeks. And so we call that cycle a batch. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've had about a dozen batches to date. Our batches are becoming more and more thematic. And what I mean by that is Last week, we just launched Batch Mini in mm-hmm. San Francisco, and it's our very first children's collection. And we like to you know, really put things in context. And we see this tremendous opportunity sort of at the forefront of contextual commerce, really the idea that you can put products in more non-traditional spaces and environments where people can see them, interact with them, test them out, try them, and really make an informed decision. You know, a lot of the learning from my time at One Kings Lane, but also my time as a consumer, is that it's very difficult to buy certain types of products in an online-only scenario. Things that have a comfort, sizing, lead time, or even high price parameter Mm -hmm. are very difficult. You don't want to spend, you know, $800 buying something 
something that you only buy once every five to ten years. Couch, for example. Yeah. You just bought one and it's just only, you know, you got to sit in it. (laughs) Most people don't want to do that without, you know, seeing what color it is or understanding what it means for the seat depth to be 31 inches versus Mm -hmm. 37 inches. And, you know, the same is true of kind of any new product that a consumer hasn't previously had a touch point with that maybe has a comfort element. So sofa is a great example, but even a pair of shoes. I mean, if it's an unknown brand and you're not sure how that's going to fit or what it's going to feel like, you're going to hesitate to spend you know, three, $400 buying those shoes because the inconvenience of maybe having to return them or send them back or exchange them is a pretty high burden in modern life where we're busy and you know we want to get things right. So Batch was really designed sort of to think about the next generation of brands as well as shoppers and where those transactions would most ideally occur. So you answered a lot of this question, but I was just thinking about the batch experience for the customer and consumer. And is your demographic, and these are you know more inside terms and I can explain them to people, but is it based on psychographics or mindsets, which would you say? And I guess I should explain psychographics so people understand means seeing people not based on age, but more based on their psychology, like a 92-year-old who may act like a teenager or a 15-year-old who acts like an old man, whereas mindset is more of the attitudes you hold. So there could be 10 reasons why people like one store or something like that. Yeah, so it's actually pretty interesting because we really think about customers in terms of where they are in their life journey. And I guess by that I mean... We like to meet people on a home buying journey because we actually see that when someone is transacting or thinking about buying property, that's a pretty major life milestone. And when they do that, there's actually good kind of aggregate national data that suggests that people in the year that they move or purchase a new home will spend anywhere from three to seven X that of a non-mover. And so that for us is like a really important trigger or milestone. You know, for a lot of millennials or my peer group, my age cohort, we're doing that for the first time right now. We're, you know, investing in real estate. But you know, what's interesting is So are our parents, but they're sort of at the other end of the spectrum. They've raised their families in the suburbs. They're maybe looking to downsize. They're looking to get back into the city center. So we think about our customer touch points as really being a bit more transaction-based. The good news is, is that, you know, if you take the the broad view here, what we're trying to do with shopping and how we rethink that is broadly applicable to anyone because, you know, as we carry out and fulfill our mission of turning neighborhoods and communities and urban environments into these shoppable areas and destinations, that's really accessible to anyone, regardless of age and, and attitude or, or belief. So, You're really a part of this new rebirth of retail. So, for example, Gen X is apparently love malls as a place to socialize, kind of like boomers did, like myself. And those trends are obviously changing. And and, and more and more, and I've seen this certainly in the mall business, uh, even here in New Jersey, where a lot of the malls were created, the ones that are surviving are the ones that are being creative. For sure. I read the Wall Street Journal article um, last week that said that, you know, the generation below me is shopping at malls much more. And it's funny because even in the seven weeks that we've been open at Hudson Yards, we found that especially on kind of after school and on weekends, we're getting a lot of teenagers that are congregating and they're coming into batch and they're taking laps around, but they're also just kind of parking themselves on our comfortable sectionals and, and seating arrangements and hanging out with their friends. And, you know, I think 
that sort of skipped over or passed over my generation. So really interesting to see that trend come back. Sure. And and that generation obviously is is using social media as much as possible. How are you leveraging social media to market Batch or, or to get customers to really share your message? Yeah, well, social media is so important to any consumer brand. I mean, it's our daily interface, touch point, primary mode and method of communication. We have somewhere between 15 and 20,000 followers digitally across platforms. And, you know, the great thing about social media is that anyone can participate for free. You know, I think the bigger companies have different aspirations about how they might monetize corporate customers like me. But it's a great way to get access. And as a small company, we don't spend a lot of money on advertising. Um, So social media is like the way that we can get out in front of our audience every single day um, Mm -hmm. and continuously. Well, I I would assume that your phone is probably starting to ring off the hook, so to speak, with new and upcoming brands that want to be part of your next batch collection. How do you put your finger on the pulse of what the buyers are looking for? I mean, certainly you're dealing with the Knob Hill area in San Francisco and now the Hudson Yards area in New York. Two different, but in many ways, similar, similar areas. So how are you handling that? You know, I've always thought of myself as a bit of a forward thinker, as a trendsetter. I can even think back to being like a nine or 10 year old and in grade school and always caring so deeply about having like the coolest toys and gadgets and tech and outfits. And, you know, that's uh, something that's funny that's kind of persisted into my adult life. So I think about, you know, our role as a curator and in some ways as a curator of what's cool or relevant. Strategically, it's been more important for us to get more thematic or a bit more narrow as we present these different edits or batches. Mm-hmm. And so I mentioned our kids collection. We also recently had a, um, a canine collection. So it was all, everything for dogs and I know, dog I, owners. I bought a few of those things. <laughs> and, um, you know, we, we our name being Batch last fall had a cleverly named men's collection called The Bachelor. Wow. Um, we've had a pink batch. And so, you know, that thematic focus and discipline does help us hone in and narrow on specific types of product categories. Um, We also have, you know, more data now. We're a little less than two years into this journey. Um, So we we know what types of product categories and price points do tend to resonate. But I think the one consistent thing we have learned and discovered is sort of consumers today are so much more savvy and care a lot more about the genesis of a brand or a founder and sort of the ethos of a product. And, you know, I think Soulguard, Adrian's company is a great example Mm -hmm. of, you know, there's lots of luggage options today on the market. And so why Soulguard? Or, you know, that applies to anything we're selling. I mean, right now we've got everything from toothpaste to dog treats to family-friendly upholstered furniture pieces to exercise equipment and and apparel and, and so much more than that too. But people really want that differentiation. They want to know the story. They want to connect with the the maker or the people creating the products. And Mm -hmm. I think that's a bit of what social media has done for us is moved us into this era where, you know, everything must have a unique narrative. 
Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of unique narrative, we have Adrian Solgard here with us. Hello, hello. How are you guys doing? Great, great, Adrian. So glad that you can join us. And I want you to tell your story. You and I met a few years ago at Vayner Sports Event in LA, with, thanks to our mutual friend Gary and AJ Vaynerchuk. And I, I got my first hand on your very cool backpack. But the story is fascinating, and especially the Kickstarter part. So maybe first tell us a little bit about your story, and then I want to hear the connection and how it's worked with Batch. Yeah, sure. Uh, so the the quickest version I can do, we'll just go really quick. When I was 16 years old, I started a t-shirt company so I could pay for travel to get to BMX contests around the West Coast. Then when I was started making BMX videos for all my friends and sponsorship videos, ended up right after high school getting a job at a TV production studio, worked in TV for about seven years and was pretty good at telling stories. And I had this idea for a bike lock. So I put this bike lock on Kickstarter that got funded. I had missed doing something physical, you know, growing up on a farm and making t-shirts and and my teenage years. I just wanted to, instead of just purely digital, I wanted to make something I could touch. So put that on Kickstarter. It was a brand new platform at the time. It got funded, raised $50,000, 1,100 backers all over the world. And I thought, wow, great. Ran that company for about three years, sold the patents to a guy in Belgium. And a few days later, I was on a date in Barcelona with a girl and she had her backpack stolen from right between her chairs. And I knew how to make locks. Mm -hmm. I knew how to tell a decent story at this point. And I'd been spending a lot of years traveling, so I wanted to put all those features together into one bag, put that on Kickstarter. The sale of those patents didn't work out so well for me, so I built the prototype for that backpack with $600. Six weeks later, launched it on Kickstarter, and it raised $600,000. And at that point, it was a backpack with a solar panel, and that was the first step towards sustainability. So I'd been really wanting to do something that was doing good for the planet, but was also great for the people using it that had some, some cool features to it, some pieces that you could you know, stand out from the rest of the crowd and have a have an innovative product. So yeah, mm-hmm. that was step one in sustainability. Then we transitioned to using recycled ocean plastics to make a lot of our products. And as we transition to all of the material being sustainable, we're doing an offset where every item we sell, we pull five pounds of plastic out of the ocean. I want to talk about that just for a moment, because you and I have talked about this, and I think it's really fascinating. And last week on our show, we did a program on sustainable investing, and we were talking a lot about the plastics in the ocean, and, and, and the numbers are just just incredible. What what was that experience like? Now, if were you, is it Thailand? I forget exactly we're, where we're you We're doing went. the ocean plastics in Bali, or in sorry, Bali. in the Philippines. In the Philippines. Philippines. The, the first experience that I had really seeing it firsthand was going to Bali. I was on a trip, and I was told that Bali was one of the most beautiful places in the world, and I'm not sure if you guys have been. And... You go to this beach and it's supposedly beautiful, but it's covered in trash and there's just Mm. plastic everywhere. And then the more you start looking into it, there's, as a human race, we're dumping 30,000 pounds of plastic into the ocean every minute. That's a full garbage truck, just full of plastic nonstop every minute going into the ocean. So as I sort of grappled with that and seeing it firsthand and realizing, okay, this is a real problem. I started working with uh, our supply chain to figure out how we could make that happen. So we found a group in the Philippines that's collecting plastics from beaches, coastlines, and waterways, rivers, and that kind of thing. And that's plastic that would be ending up in the ocean. We're collecting that. And the material that we can use, which is mostly made from plastic bottles, we use that to make a fabric that we're using to make our bags. And the other plastic is then recycled and done in whatever way it can be mm-hmm. can be utilized. But, and, yeah. and these backpacks are coming out soon? Yes. Uh, yeah. uh, there are. We'll be shipping them starting July 15th. Great, great. So, so how did the batch connection happen, and 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 what have kind of you both learned from that experience? I'll so, let, I'll I, let you start. I was actually great to see you, Lindsay. <laughs> um, yeah, I was actually introduced to Batch through a guy named Matt Young from the Ember Company, and he said, "Hey, Adrian, you should chat with Lindsay." And I said, "Okay, I'll check it out." And I looked at, into what you guys were doing, and you were launching the store, I think, in New York. Two weeks later, it was very <laughs> short, very yeah. short line. 
And it sounded great because we had our first batch of suitcases coming in of the new carry-on closet. That was the suitcase with the built-in shelving system that just won Time Magazine. Yep. And uh, yeah, long story short. But we got into the store and we actually had an event there on your second day you were open. Yes. We had a launch event for our Kickstarter backers to come and turn up and test out the product and check it out. So yeah, the the connection seemed really natural because there is there is such a transformation in what's happening in retail and people still want to physically see products. Super important. So, so important. And I think that we reached peak direct consumer maybe two years ago. And I think now people are transitioning to really wanting to see products again. And Lindsay, why do you think it was the right fit you know, as an example of you know one of your batches? Yeah. So with our debut New York batch. We called it Batch Hello, and we wanted it to be an introduction to a lot of our alumni brands that we'd previously worked with in San Francisco. But to that, we added a half dozen or so companies that were local to the New York area. Um, And we thought it was really great to have these local companies showcasing and featuring their products sort of as we were introducing ourselves to the market here in the city. Um, And so Soul Guard and a number of others, Lolly Beauty, Lord Jameson, Made in Home were sort of part of that first wave of other great New York entrepreneurs who were looking for this offline, real-world, physical retail touchpoint that we were able to get connected with really quickly and that fit in nicely to that first edit. So I think our first batch here in New York was about 21 different companies, and I want to say that 15 of them we'd previously featured in our San Francisco location, and then you know, Mitch was... Um, not Mitch. Adrian was mm-hmm. one of the six other companies. So going forward, is there a type of industry or something that you want to bring into the batch experience? Is there a different area that you're kind of considering in, in the growth yeah, area? So, I mean, like any great retailer, you have to plan so far in advance in terms of you know what your merchandising plans look like. So for us, our batches are eight to 10 weeks. Um, it's about two months each and we we do about six batches a year. So we're, you know, we're locked and loaded for the rest of 2019. Right now we've got Batch Mini in San Francisco and that will come to New York over the summer. Really excited to also be working with a cool San Francisco street artist who's going to be producing a limited edition kids item that will be exclusive to Batch at Hudson Yards over the summer. And he's also going to be doing our window installation for that collection. So that will start at the end of June and go sort of through the summer months. And then, you know, our model right now is for these batches to start in San Francisco where our team is based, and then they'll rotate into Hudson Yard. So after Batch Mini heads to New York, we will introduce something that we're roughly thinking of as Batch Local in San Francisco, where all of the products will have a genesis of, you know, a 100-mile radius or thereabouts. Um, So really emphasizing kind of the local maker economy and, you know, the best of Northern California, San Francisco Bay Area, and all of the innovation and sort of spirit of craftsmanship there. And that will take us into our fall season in San Francisco, which is going to have a more apparel and accessories focus. And then that will take us into the holiday season in 2019, which for us, I'm super excited about is going to have more of a give back component. So if you want your holiday spend or purchases to have some sort of philanthropic impact or buy one, get one, or supporting kind of local artisan groups, you would come to Batch to sort of find and pursue, you know, the the best edit of those companies and products. So I live in a town in Westfield, New Jersey. And when we first moved there in the early 90s in a recession, there, you know, it was a lot of homegrown stores that were just trying to make it. And then boom, of course, 
you know, the Gap and Banana Republic and Victoria's Secret and, and Starbucks and everybody else came to town and had a tremendous run. And one by one, they're disappearing. Okay, mm-hmm. one by one, and new n- some newer places are coming in. Warby Parker came in, for example, but they're, they're you know it's it's changing so much. So I guess my question to you is like, at this point in the retail world, who are retailers that you look up to and try to learn from? Because there's it's just such a dramatic disruption in in that world. Yeah, you know, I mean, we thank you, Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> call and classify ourselves as. A retailer, but I don't necessarily look to other retailers to draw inspiration from because as a startup, it's really our opportunity to kind of rewrite a lot of the rules. And so I look to different analogs like Airbnb and some of these other, you know, well-funded later stage startups to or in great awe of how they pursued a really unorthodox opportunity. And in the Airbnb case, it was, you know, how do we take an existing asset class residential real estate, people's extra bedrooms or basements, and monetize them as a marketplace hospitality opportunity. And, you know, that's a great analog for where we see the opportunity as more of a distributed retailer that's supported and powered by the brands that you can find in our two retail locations. But again, our long game is thinking about actually how you can transform residential real estate and local communities into really hyper-local but distributed places where you can browse and buy products potentially from your neighbor's home or the home on the market for sale around the corner. And, you know, that's really a very different version of what the store of the future looks like. And so I I, I can't look to anyone, even Amazon, um, for that sort of inspiration. But there are plenty of examples of other companies pushing the envelope or seeing a really unique... We work, for example. Yeah, yeah. seeing yeah. a really unique opportunity kind of at the intersection of disparate types of industries or sectors. Well, I certainly would welcome uh, you to use my house now that I can't deduct my uh, property taxes anymore in New Jersey. Um, <laughs> can, can maybe I, I could do it. Yeah, for a second and just yeah. say how attractive the batch model is for, for a brand. Because for us, if we want to open a physical retail store, we're signing a five, 10-year lease at the minimum three years. If we want to work with, you know, a major retailer across the country, we're, you know, agreeing to decent size orders, but the payment terms are 120 days. And for a growing brand, that kind of stuff is quite difficult. Whereas with Batch, we can sign up, we go, we set up the store, we choose what products we put in there, and we get direct information about what products are selling. And there's a motivation on their side because you guys get a percentage of the revenue and it's it's not obscene at all. And it's quite a reasonable way where there's really truly a win-win for the brand and the retailer. Whereas so many of the other situations, it's it's very much one-sided if you deal with the major major retailer. So as a brand, thank you for setting <laughs> up a system that actually works. Thank you. <laughs> so just, just get more stores no. just all across the country. <laughs> <laughs> Please, Westfield, New Jersey. I'll put you, I know the mayor really well. Um, so before we close, uh, both Lindsay and and Adrian, I'd, I'd like you to you know take a minute and tell people more about uh, where you're located. We'll start with you, Lindsay, about the first two locations. Yeah, so you can find our showrooms in San Francisco, actually in a very cool historic firehouse in Russian Hill on Pacific Avenue, 1648 Pacific Avenue, open six days a week. Again, we've got our first kids collection running now until the end of June. That will move into Hudson Yards, where you can find us in New York 
on the second floor of 20 Hudson Yards or the, the shops at Hudson Yards across from Uniqlo and next to Fuku, David Chang's really delicious fried chicken restaurant. Great, great. And uh, Adrian, by the way, I'm going to put links to, for all of these on the uh, on the show notes. But Adrian, why don't you tell us a little bit about where people can find your products? Yeah, we're working on getting our distribution into retail stores across the country. But for now, the best way is to find us at our website, soulguard.co. That's S-O-L-G-A-A-R-D dot C-O. And before we go, you did mention about the uh, suitcase. Just tell us a little bit more about that. I know it was named <laughs> one of the time top products last year. Yeah. So the suitcase, I, again, spending a lot of my time traveling, one of the biggest problems that I kept facing was the chaos of a hotel room. You unpack your suitcase, your stuff flies everywhere. And then when you need to pack up, it's actually a real hassle because you need to repack everything in that. I started timing it. It's about 15 minutes to repack a messy hotel room. And so I wanted to come up with a system that would help me stay organized in the room and make it faster to get out again. So I came up with a system that's a, a shelving system that hangs off the handle of the suitcase. So you don't need to hang it from a closet or anything like that. It's fully self-sustaining. So no matter where you are, you can stay organized on the go and it's faster for you on both ends of the journey. Certainly in Airbnbs, I would think <laughs> exactly. that's a, that's a, that's a exactly. big advantage. So so great. That's soulguard.com and we'll... We dot co, dot co. Dot co. Okay. I'm um, working on the dot com. There's a long okay. story there. Yeah, there always is. <laughs> there's a, there's always is. We will put the link up. But thank you, Lindsay, first of all, for being here and, 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 and sharing pleasure. sharing your story and hearing all about Batch. Adrian, I'm glad you're able to drop in and thank tell you. us uh, more about what you've been up to. And thank everybody, as always, for listening. And hopefully by the time this airs in the next few weeks, we will finally be listed on Spotify. So you'll be able to subscribe which I've been wanting to say for 11 weeks. I want to thank everyone at Resonate Recording for post-production, John, uh, Janelle especially, because I'm going to give you a little work here. And remember, when it comes to saving for your future, pay yourself first. Take care. Take care.